the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the Monday program, the start of a new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, questions about the Bible, questions about stuff going on in your life, really anything that's on your heart. All you have to do is pick up the phone and dial 210-340-9585. If you are outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630 You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. We have got so much going on tonight here at Calvary Chapel. Our uh, pastor's wives will be sharing their retreat reflections. This will be the final Monday night for that. Uh, Of course, our men uh, with Pastor Ken are having their Bible study as well, all at 7 o'clock. And our high schoolers and junior high schoolers uh, will be doing uh, their Monday night service at the same time as well. So you can make it a family affair and get everybody here. Let me thank everybody for their prayers. Joy of Jesus was just spectacular. Uh, tons and tons of people were there. Uh, for me, the pastor, just to sort of sit back and watch what everybody was doing, uh, to see the joy in their hearts, to see the service. I got to tell you, the the amount of clothing that was given away Saturday was staggering. And we still brought some back. But we'd see people with four and five trash bags full of clothes that they got. We gave away, I don't know, close to 50 bicycles, um, the, the the food line, the haircut line, uh, manicures, uh, makeovers. Uh, the massage ministry was uh, hugely popular. It really was a terrific day. I got to meet several of you from our uh, radio audience. Thank you for finding me and introducing yourself to me. It was a blessing to get to see you face to face. And uh, just a really good day. A good day. Tired. It was warm out there. Uh, I I told the church yesterday, I feel like I swallowed half of the dust in San Antonio in the park. So I'm still struggling a little bit with my voice. But it was really, really a a great day. And yesterday when we came to church, this place was just on fire. People so excited about the way God used them. And uh, it was just a, a dream day. It really was a perfect day. Uh, for uh, for the church to get together and do what the church is supposed to do. Again, thank you for your prayers. Yesterday afternoon, after our uh, final service, 
uh, I made the announcement that we were going to go over and pray at our new building. We have a new building uh, in process, just getting started, and and uh, uh, just thought it'd be nice to get the church over there, just a few people who wanted to pray. And I really thought, you know, it's 2.30 on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, I thought there'd be 20 people that showed up. You should have seen the numbers of people, the parking lot, which before looked really big. It looked really small because there were so many cars out there, and it was just a blessing. People were so grateful, thanking the Lord, uh, crying, laughing. Paula, especially, she, uh, when she prayed, she just could hardly keep it together. So it, it was a, a, a long day, but a really, really good day. And uh, these are the kisses that the Lord gives you from time to time as you're serving. So we've got our open phone lines. I'll get with some questions that have been sent. If you have anything at all, please uh, give us a call. We'd love your live calls. Our first question comes from Tracy. She said, Pastor Ron, how could God ever ask a father to sacrifice their child as he did with Abraham and Isaac? Tracy, a couple of things that you really need to look at closely when you read the story. God never intended that Abraham would sacrifice his son. I want you to think about that. God always knew what he was going to do. He was in control. This was a test. And as is the case with all tests, Abraham needed it. Now, implied in the passage of Scripture is uh, the idea that Abraham sort of put Isaac uh, in terms of priorities ahead of his relationship with, with God. You know, God is the one who gave the gift. Isaac was a miraculous birth. And and at that particular point, it seems as though um, Abraham uh, was more taken with Isaac than he was with God. And God was simply testing him. Let's find out who you love the most. But God never asked him to sacrifice his child. God knew that would never happen. That would be an abomination to the Lord. But God, as I said, knew exactly what he was going to do. Abraham passed the test. One needs only to read in Hebrews chapter 11. And Abraham, though he struggled, uh, his heart was willing to be submitted. And he realized um, by faith that if God made him all of these promises uh, through Isaac, that if he killed Isaac, then God was going to raise him from the dead. And figuratively, Hebrews says he was raised from the dead. So there was never any danger, never any intent. Now, with regard to the question, how could God ever ask a father? Well, if anybody ever could, it would be God the Father, because he is the one who sacrificed his own son for your sins and mine. You know, Tracy, one of the things that I say to people here at Calvary Chapel all the time is that God never asks us to do something that he hasn't first done for us. Can you imagine what it was like for the Father when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane pleading with him on three separate occasions to spare, to spare him? Father, if there's any way this cup can pass for me. And on three occasions, the Lord said no. Jesus, of course, was praying, nevertheless, thy will, not my will, be done. And then on the cross, when Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know, it's the only time Jesus ever called his Father anything but Father or Abba. This right there. In his humanity, Jesus was alone. How hard was that for the Father to turn his back on his own Son? And yet he did it, Tracy, because he figured that you were worth more, even than his own son. So that's what our faith is all about, trusting the character and the nature of God. So in the future, when when you have a question that would even suggest that God is not just or that God is not fair, remember first and foremost that God can't be anything but just and fair. And when you really get that, then it will settle a lot of other issues. We, we know who he is. The Bible reveals who he is and what he's done for us. And he is completely trustworthy. So Abraham was never 
ever in any danger at all of sacrificing his son, Isaac, who, by the way, wasn't a little boy at that time. I think we sometimes get the impression he was a little boy. He was probably close to 20 years of age, and uh, he's the one that noticed, Father, we have everything we need for the sacrifice, but where's the lamb or where's the ram? And in chapter 22 of Genesis, Abraham prophetically says, God will himself be the sacrifice. So I hope that answers your question, Tracy. Thank you very, very much. Here's an anonymous question. Why did God allow the murder of babies and the rape of women in Israel? Um, anonymous, we know that we live in a, in a, in a dark, wicked world. Um, obviously, what happened on October 7th was a horrendous, painful, even to talk about. But here's the thing that we have to understand, and I get this question not about this particular circumstance, but all the time, why does God allow bad things to happen? Well, God doesn't stop them. It's not that he allows them. It's just that he doesn't stop them. We knew that when the world was overcome by sin, these things would happen. And, you know, when something tragic like this happens, we all want to know, well, why didn't God stop them? Especially we want to know that if if something happened to us. Why did you let this happen, God? Um, When those things happen, God's only role is not in prohibiting them. And here's what we have to understand, Anonymous. If God is going to stop sin, then he has to stop all sin. Not just the stuff that we consider horrific, not just the stuff that offends us, but all sin. And that means God would have to judge every sin. Now, here's the good news. God is going to stop all of the evil in this world. With every bit of my heart, I believe that Jesus is returning soon. You look at the way the world is, you look at the things going on in Israel, which is sort of the the barometer for, for how close we are to the end. And I believe with all of my heart, Jesus is coming for his church soon, and then God is going to stop all of the evil in the world, and he's going to do it by sending his son after the Great Tribulation or at the end of the Great Tribulation, and he's going to wage war, Jesus is, on those who are his enemies. And then we're going to rule and reign with the Lord in perfect justice and perfect righteousness. But Anonymous, that time is not yet. It's just not yet time for Jesus to return. Just like when Jesus was here the first time, he kept saying, my hour has not yet come. Well, the hour for the eradication of evil has not yet come. Mankind has free will, and we choose to use that free will to harm others. One thing that's really interesting about this whole thing with Hamas, you know, it's it's really only religious evil that would kill babies and rape women, including old women, and then flaunt it and show pictures of it. I sometimes wonder why God allows false teachers. Why does God allow false religions? Well, God's not responsible for any of that. That's man that's done that. And we're dealing with the most evil false religion in the Middle East that there is. And this is the end of man's will apart from Christ. This is how horrible we all can be. And so he didn't allow, I mean, he allowed it in in so far that he didn't stop it. But he did not, um, he doesn't approve of it, and he is going to stop it. And he's going to do that very, very soon. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from, let me see the name. Um, I don't have the name. Oh, from Caleb, it looks like. Uh, Three questions, he said. Outside of Aquila and Priscilla, we don't have many examples of a biblically-centered marriage in Scripture. Why is this the case? And how have you seen well-intentioned marriages fall apart in the church? Man, could I spend the whole hour on this question, Caleb? Thank you for asking. I'll get to your other questions as well. Um, Priscilla and Aquila really are the only New Testament example 
of a godly marriage. And I always uh, point out that the reason their marriage worked is because they were both committed with all of their hearts to serving God. It wasn't about negotiating terms of the marriage. It wasn't about making life easy. They lived in a dangerous world. They were they were declaring a dangerous message. And Priscilla and Aquila used their gifts to complement one another. And they were committed to serving the Lord together. If you want a marriage to be strong, to be godly, then serve the Lord together. Be in the Word together. Pray together. But serve together. And that's what Priscilla and Aquila did. Now, I'm gonna the, the name escapes me, and I'll get it uh, later. I'll have it for you by tomorrow's program. But there's also one example of a, of a godly marriage in the Old Testament. And it's Josiah's advisor and his wife. Um, uh, they were both committed to the Lord in very dangerous times. And so there's really only two. Caleb, in all of the scripture that I've been able uh, to point out. And, you know, Paul and I, we, we often are asked to do marriage conferences and things. And when we do, that's one of the things I point out. Having a godly marriage uh, isn't easy. And the reason it's not easy is because our flesh gets in the way. When you ask, uh, how have I seen well-intentioned marriages fall apart in the church? Our flesh that's all. When we're not walking in the Spirit, we're, everything is going to fall apart. And we, we stop being in the Word together. We stop praying together. We stop serving together. And we, we do what we want to do. And then the marriage becomes a negotiation. One of the things, Caleb, that is always true in the marriage counseling that, that we do here at Calvary Chapel is we let people know at the beginning that Jesus does not negotiate. Well, I think he should do this. I think she ought to do this. He doesn't negotiate. He has a one-way sign in every home. This is marriage my way, and it only comes with submission to him. So marriages have fallen apart. And every marriage, I think, every marriage, Caleb, is well-intentioned at the beginning. We get spiritually lazy. Our flesh rules and reigns, and that's when we're going to be in trouble. His next question He says, with the church's responsibility primarily being to teach the word, how should a church navigate doing so in turbulent and unjust times? Thinking of the events like racial injustice, the homelessness crisis in America, and especially the mass murder in Israel right now, what is and isn't the church's job, and what is and isn't the believer's duty? Caleb, that's such a deep question. One of the things that that we need to remember, the church's job is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Christ. We're to evangelize, be active in sharing our faith. That's what Paul writes to Pastor Philemon. But we're also then to teach the word. And what's going on in the world doesn't change the way we teach or what we teach at all. Now, uh, there, there are times, of course, Israel has been brought up because that's what's going on. There are times when we've talked about homelessness because it applied in the passage of Scripture we were teaching. But it doesn't change what we do. And Caleb, we teach the, the word verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So I don't have the opportunity to say, well, something really came up and I don't want to teach this. I'm going to teach this. Uh, I'm going to pick up next Sunday where I left off this Sunday. The same is true on Wednesdays. The same is true on Friday. Uh, We are currently on Sunday in Acts chapter 20 and uh, my Bible study yesterday and and equally true of my Bible study this coming Sunday is really going to be about what we do. And the events of the world, racial injustice can be solved if people will get saved. If people won't get saved, there will be no solution ever for racial injustice. The homelessness problem in this world, Caleb, in this country, my goodness, there's no solution for it. People want to be homeless. City governments, uh, state governments in some cases have decided that we're just going to let them uh, wreak havoc. We're not going to have any law and order anymore. And people are going to take advantage of that. And we're seeing things get worse and worse, exponentially worse. So um, our job is to convert people to Christ. You know, if you read our Bibles, Caleb, we're not going to get better. 
as we get closer to the return of Jesus, things are going to get worse. And we need in churches to teach the word, to equip the saints for the work of ministry in these last days. Very, very important question. Um, We can only do what we do. And we proclaim the gospel. People make a decision on their own whether or not they're going to receive it. And then finally, how does Calvary Chapels move into a new building aligned with the vision God has given for this specific church? Caleb, we're not going to do anything different. We're going to do it on a bigger scale. Uh, I hope this doesn't sound arrogant to anybody who's listening, but the one thing the Lord has spoken in my heart, we've needed a building for for 15 years. Um, We've needed it desperately. Um, And God's always told me, when the time is right, until then, keep doing what you do. So when we go into a new building, uh, we're going to do exactly the same thing. Our schedule will be the same now. I hope that we're going to be able to go to two services instead of three. Uh, we're, we're putting in a thousand-seat sanctuary, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm confident, at least at the beginning, that's the way it's going to be. But here's the part that I hope doesn't sound arrogant. God said, whatever he builds, he'll fill. And in the meantime, he just has instructed me and Pastor Ken and the others here to keep doing what we're doing so nothing is going to change. Malta Medical is going to have a bigger space. We desperately need that uh, because we have a huge patient base. That's our free doctor's office, Um, our, our free school. Uh, we're going to be able to double the size of our school immediately and in the not very distant future, um, make it three or four times bigger. We don't like saying no to families who want their kids in the school and the kids who want to be here. And we're going to be able to do the same thing that we do. Again, the size won't change. We'll need more teachers and we need more space that we'll have over there. But what we do won't change. All of our ministries will be able to be under one roof. And, um, you know, whether it's um, unusual kindness, that is our free restaurant. We're finally going to be able to, to, to have room to put that in the church building. So um, the vision that God has given us doesn't change. Just the numbers of people to whom we'll be ministering will change. And I think, well, I don't have to say that God knows the truth, but, but I believe we're really ready to do this. It has nothing to do with wanting to be a big church it certainly doesn't have anything to do with wanting notoriety. Um, all we want to do is do what we've been doing now for 28 plus years. We want to do that with whoever shows up. And honestly, Caleb, we just hate, hate, hate saying no to people. So that's what's going on. I appreciate your questions very, very much. We're coming to the end of the first half of the program, 340-9585. Here's the last question for this half. Uh, It's from Matthias, um, or Matthias, probably in English. Uh, Matthew 13, 47, sounds like there are unsaved people in the kingdom of God. Is that a correct saying? I always thought that the kingdom of God refers to believers only. Um, Matthias, we have to understand the Jewish context of Matthew 13. These are Jesus' parables, and he's speaking to Jews and in the process evangelizing Jews. And so with a Jewish perspective, the kingdom of God is seen from that Jewish point of view. And Jesus is simply saying the kingdom of God. Now, in the millennial reign of Christ on earth, there will be unbelievers. And we know there's going to be unbelievers, people who survived the Great Tribulation and then uh, the, the, the multiplied millions of people that will be born in a thousand-year reign of perfect righteousness and judgment on a redeemed earth. Uh, we know there are going to be unbelievers. Um, they're going to be forced to submit to Jesus. They're going to be forced to be righteous and just in terms of their behavior. But we also know that at the end of the thousand years, um, the um, enemy, Satan, is going to be loosed to give the people who were born, who lived only during that millennial reign, uh, they have to make their own free will choice. 
And sadly, we know that the numbers of people who are going to be deceived are as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Uh, Then they're going to be destroyed, the great white throne judgment. After that, we'll go to heaven. And in heaven, Matthias, only believers, born-again Christians, are going to be there. Only born-again Christians are going to be there. And so the kingdom of God in Matthew 13, from a Jewish construct, um, um, is about the kingdom promised to the descendant of David, who is, of course, Jesus Christ. One of the things we have to really be aware of when we're reading the parables, we have to remember to whom he's speaking, what are the circumstances that he's speaking, and what is he trying to communicate? What is he teaching the people there? And all of the parables are very Jewish, and many of them, Matthias, many of them are directed at the enemies of God. They were furious, it says, of the religious leaders, because they realized that Jesus was talking about them. So Jesus made his point. He wasn't shy about making his point. He knew exactly what he was doing, and that's the context of the parables. Great question. We've got 30 minutes left in our Monday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Monday show. Phones have been quiet. We'd love your calls. 340-9585. Here is a question from Jack, a heartbreaking one. What can I say to someone who was sexually abused as a child when she asked, where was God? Jack, the answer is he was brokenhearted. He was angry. And he's sorry for what happened to you, but it's not his fault. And one of the things that we've got to understand is that we can't Expect that God is going to tailor a world to suit our needs. Bad things happen. Just as people ask, well, where was Jesus when this happened? Well, I mean, where was the Lord when when something happened? Well, the father had to watch his own son be beaten. And Jack, what I would tell her is that nobody understands her pain like God does. Jesus, who was a victim, Jesus could have asked, uh, in fact, he did. Where are you, Father? Why have you forsaken me? But he understands that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Now, I'm not trying to be trite and give you Christian platitudes here, Jack. But one of the things that this girl, this woman needs to know is that God's heart was broken. And he loves her and he loves her so much that he sent his only son, he endured his son's tragic beating and death just to win her heart. Now let me also say this, Jack, and, and this is just my own personal experience, and I've seen it dozens and dozens of times. Especially women who have been physically or sexually abused by men in their lives, God pours out such abundant grace upon their lives that when they come to him, he pours out such abundant grace that he really, really does change their lives in an instant. And he'll always be there. He'll never leave her. She'll never have to wonder where he is. It's almost like God says, come to me so I can make up for all the damage that's caused, been caused to you. Come to me. 
And now she's got a decision to make. If Jesus is real, and he's the only source of comfort for somebody who's experienced the trauma that she has, then that's the only answer that's available to her. Now, I don't know this woman, Jack, I don't know you, but but the, the, the idea here isn't that that she doesn't want to know the Lord. But sometimes we humans have a tendency to use um, our victimization as an excuse not to come to the Lord so we can do what we want. Just tell her God loves her. He proved it. And there is going to be abundant grace available to you to move on, to move forward with your life in spite of what's happened to you. And reminder constantly, I know this is a, a being being repetitious, but reminder constantly that only Jesus understands the kind of pain that she endured. Just for a moment, because I always like to take this opportunity, let me speak to, to, to women in the audience. If you're being abused physically, um, sexually, if you're being abused, then you need to get out of that relationship quickly. I'm not talking about living with a jerk. Paula lived with a jerk for 13 years. And she prayed for me and she hung in there. But if somebody is beating you, if you're being sexually abused, God forbid if your daughters are being sexually abused, you have to get out. And the fact that you don't know where you go, that's not an excuse. You can come to us and we'll help. But there's always help out there. You've got to run into the arms of Jesus and let him put his arms around you. For this young woman, or I assume she's a young woman, Jack, I don't know that to be true, but but for whoever this woman is and however old and whatever her experience, be patient and keep saying the same thing. Jesus is there. He'll let you know how sad he is because of your heartbreak. He didn't cause it. It wasn't his fault. But he'll make up for it if you give him the opportunity to do so. Here is another question. These are the kind that are frustrating to me as a pastor. It's from Tony. He says, how can I respond to someone who says they're looking for a church that is LGBTQ affirming? Well, Tony, there's a lot of those churches now, here's the problem, and you need to be very direct with this response. You need to say, the only problem with that church is you won't find Jesus there. It's a symbol. That's, it's a church only in name. It's certainly not a church of Jesus Christ. But Jesus won't be there. You can find a whole bunch of people who put their arm around you and pat you on the back and tell you how brave you are for living a sinful life and doing so willfully. But you're just not going to find Jesus there. And Jesus is the only one who can satisfy that hole in your heart. So just tell me, there's lots of places. There's a whole bunch of places. Um, might as well just go hang out with friends. But if you want a real church, a church where Jesus is in control, well, then you got to look for another church. And you won't find a church like that that is going to tell you it's okay to sin and spend eternity in hell without putting up a fight. So, Tony, that's the answer, and it's pretty straightforward. Uh, Jesus won't be at any of those churches, but sadly there are a whole bunch of them that are around. Here's a question from Jackson. Jackson, I haven't heard from you for a long time. Thank you. He says, why doesn't God keep his promise to heal? I've been praying for healing for a long time. Jackson, God never made a promise to heal. Now, the one disease that we're all promised to be healed of is the disease caused by sin. We're on our way to hell. Jesus says in Nicodemus, we're we're born condemned already, but we're healed. By his stripes, we're healed. That has nothing to do, Jackson, with physical healing. Nothing at all to do with physical healing. 
We live in a fallen world. God did not heal the Apostle Paul. God did not heal his own son when he cried out for help. God did not heal over and over and over in the Bible. The people that belonged to him. Johnny Erickson Tata, God didn't heal her. How many millions of people over the years has been praying for her? Jackson, myself, I, I am visually impaired. My eyes are getting worse by the minute. And I know tens of thousands of people are praying for me. I pray myself. But the Lord has spoken to my heart. His grace is sufficient. He hasn't healed me. There is, there's no promise at all to be healed. Now, God still does heal sometimes. But all we have to do is look around at the world and the numbers of sick people, the numbers of people in the hospital, the, the, the different age ranges of the people who are in the hospitals, from little children all the way to the elderly. There's a lot more people by far that don't get healed than do. You know, in our church currently, we have um, a handful of people that I know of personally who are suffering from cancer, and they're being treated. And and uh, it's hard. I mean, they really, really struggle. Some of them have been touched by the Lord and healed. Some of them have been healed through the process of, of treatment that's offered by doctors. But you know, the, the hard thing is some of them just don't get healed. Some of them end up dying with cancer, and then they get healed. They go to be with Jesus. But one of the things that we have to do is be careful. Don't count on a promise that God hasn't made, and certainly don't get angry with the Lord Jackson or be frustrated with him because he hasn't healed you. He never made you that promise. We don't know why God heals some, and he doesn't heal others. If I was God and nobody ever asked me to be, I'd want to heal everybody. But his ways are not my ways, his thoughts above my thoughts. And God is a perfect, pleasing, acceptable will. Here's what I can promise you. The Apostle Paul says it this way. I know that my present sufferings, and he was a man who suffered mightily, I know that my present sufferings aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to me or in me. It's interchangeable there in the language. So he hasn't made you that promise, Jackson. Now, if this is really a burden in your heart, then get alone with the Lord and ask him, Lord, is there something that's preventing you from doing something in my life? And when we can pray, and Jackson, I think this is a good test for your heart. When you can pray, and, and again, with a grateful heart, you can ask God for all these things. And believe me, I do. I still pray for my eyes and other things going on every day, every day. And yet I say at the end of that prayer, nevertheless, thy will, O God, not mine be done. And who am I, Jackson? Who are you? If God can get more glory through your infirmities than he can through your strength, when we claim to be his servant, who are we to say no? So hang in there, Jackson. People be praying for you. But, but, but you need to spend some time. God never breaks a promise. Not ever. Maybe you've been going to a church that has told you some lies about the promises God has made. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. We've still got time if you have a question. Here is a question from Carrie. Good question. Why don't men with healing anointing go into hospitals to heal? Carrie, because the healing anointing is silliness. Um, you know, when, when, when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he's describing the gifts of the Spirit. He says, gifts, plural, of healing. That doesn't mean he gives a man the gift to heal people. The gifts of healing are received by those who get healed. And the idea in our church culture, and, and, and it's false teaching, and uh, we like all the flash and dash, but, but the, the, the idea that there is a man who is uh, especially anointed to heal, 
is is a is a lie. It's simply not true. And again, it attracts crowds. People will give a lot of money. Um, but the healing ministry, the way we see it done in our church culture, is as phony, uh, as fake as anything that you can imagine. I can promise you this, Gary. If God said to me, I'm going to give you the gift to heal people, uh, I, I, I would spend all my time in hospitals and I would start with the children's hospitals. And I wouldn't want any attention. I just want to walk through. And I, I've actually fantasized about this, you know, and asking God when I see people that are really suffering. Uh, and I've actually tried this. I've gone over and, and talked to somebody and touched them and, and just said hi or something, my hand on their shoulder. And, and I was praying, oh, Lord, heal them. I'll walk away. You get all the glory. My fantasy is walking down the aisles of hospital rooms. And as I walk past the room and pray for the people that are in there, they get healed. What happened? What happened? And God would get all of the glory. I would be invisible. The the healing ministries that we see in our world now are anything but invisible. All the attention is drawn to them. And that's what points them out as being false in their teaching. So, Carrie, they don't go into hospitals because they don't really have a healing anointing. Miriam, um, that's how it's spelled, Miriam. Can a truly born-again believer lose their salvation? Um, the answer, Miriam, is no. Um, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Um, the Bible says he is the author, which is the beginner and the finisher or the perfecter of our faith. And so, uh, no, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, says that God has given us this, uh, the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven. So a real born-again believer cannot lose their salvation. You know, when people ask me, can you lose your salvation? I always say, I don't want to. But the answer is no, if you're truly born again. You can't. Now, we have free will. We can backslide. We can sin. We can do things that we know we ought not to do. And I have known people who have done those things they ought not to do for a very long time, only to come crawling back under the the judgment of God many, many times. Um, But they make it to the end because Jesus is faithful to do so. The problem that we have, Miriam, is that we think everybody who says they're born again, everybody who says they're saved, we think they really are. And we see people that appear to be serving God, and then they're not. And we wonder, what happened? And we find them later. I have a, a, a dear man I pray for um, with some regularity who who was a pastor and loved God with all of his heart, or so we thought. And he's walked away from the Lord doesn't want anything to do with God's people, doesn't want anything to do with God. His heart is black and and stone hard. Now, was he really saved? I sure thought so. And here's what I know. I know that if he ever was saved, he still is, and God will discipline him and bring him to the end. So we'll find out at the end whether or not he really was. First uh, John uh, chapter 2 says of those false professors, they went out from us to prove they were never really a part of us. And the church is full of those people, Miriam, who say Jesus and they think they're going to go to heaven, but they've never really surrendered to the will of God or to the plan of God for their lives at all. And remember, God is nothing, I mean, he's way more than just a, a an eternal life insurance policy. He is the Lord of our lives. And when we come to him, we come to him on his terms. And when somebody's truly born again, they change. And the change is obvious to everybody. Now, some change more and some change faster than others. But the, the, the reality is when you meet Jesus, you're a different person. The old is gone and the new has come. So what's important, Miriam, is to understand that that uh, Jesus is the one who is responsible to take us to the end, and he has never lost one. It's so neat in the, in the upper room discourse. 
just before Jesus was going to be crucified. He prayed. He said, Father, I've lost none that you've given me. Miriam, that same thing remains true today. Mickey says, my question is about Hagar. Will she be in heaven? Mickey, she has to be in heaven because Our Lady's, uh, their their Sweet Summer Devotion series was the God who sees me, and Hagar is the hero of that passage of Scripture. Yeah, I think it's Genesis chapter 16 where she meets Jesus uh, in pre-incarnate form. And that's where that's her in an Old Testament born again experience, but a born again experience nonetheless. She was running away. God sent her back to where she came from, and she could do it because now I know that the God that I've heard all about sees me. He's personal and he loves me. So Hagar will be in heaven. And uh, it is a wonderful story, and she is one of the heroines of the book of Genesis. You talk about living a tough life, a slave, a slave who was mistreated by God's people. You'd think that God's people would treat them better. That wasn't the case when as soon as she got pregnant, um, um, Sarah treated her horribly. Uh, But God was there to take care of her. And so, yeah, she will be in heaven and... um, She'll be an interesting person uh, to get to know. Here is, oh, this one, Janelle. Pastor, my heart is breaking due to a church split. Have you ever experienced that? And how did you get over it? Um, Janelle, I'm going to say this. I hope I'm not being flippant with the answer, but but praise God uh, our church was under attack, but it was a long, long, long time ago uh, when our church wasn't very big. Now, in some ways, that made it more painful. Uh, we had about a, a family uh, that, that kind of rounded up support from 40 or 50 people in our church a long time ago. In fact, it was just after um, uh, 2001, maybe 2002 or three in that time frame. Um, and, and because we were starting a free school or because we did a free school, um, there was uh, uh, one particular man in the church who, who just didn't believe that having doing a free school made any sense at all. He just couldn't believe that was from God. And he stirred up a lot of trouble. And believe it or not, I, I thought I was just doing a nice thing. It was what God wanted me to do, so I really didn't have any choice. But the answer is yes, they... they um, they caused a lot of trouble, and it was so very painful. But God did some wonderful work in me and in our church through that time. And what we found out is the people that left because they wanted to cause trouble, they really weren't part of us anyway. And God has been so faithful to bring so many more who are committed to the vision that God has given us. And, yeah, it's hard to get over, and it's very, very painful, but you will get over it. Now, let me talk for just a moment about why churches split. This will be the last question I get to on the program today. Churches split because of flesh. I wish the devil didn't come to church, and I wish everybody that walked in our doors was full of the Holy Spirit. But the the reality is there's a whole bunch of people in their flesh at church, in every church, every time the doors are open. Paul says to the Ephesian elders, even men from among your own number will come to devour the flock. Well, that's what happens. People in the flesh are always going to try to cause trouble. And what you need to do is pray for them. It's okay to be righteously angry because of them. But love them. What we purposed in our heart to do during that, we wanted to be sure that anybody who wanted to come back ever, I mean, even right afterwards or even to this very day, that anybody who caused us that kind of pain, if they wanted to come back, all they had to do was say, I'm sorry, I'd, I'd stop them right there and put my arms around them and welcome them back. And God will do that very thing. And we've had a bunch of people over the years who got caught in that and came back and said, I don't know what I was thinking. It was like I was a different person. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Just stop. Welcome home. And 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 that's what we want to do. So you be that person, Janelle. You be the person who 
uh, is a bridge builder, a peacemaker, and continue with the vision that God has given your church. Let your pastor know that he can count on your prayers, your love, and your support, and um, watch and see what God will do. But as much as it hurts, don't get angry. You know, church splits, while they should never really happen, it's just a fact of life. The reality is that people aren't any better in their flesh just because they come to church. I try to convince our church all the time that my flesh is as ugly, as stinky today as it was um, the day before I got saved. Uh, and the answer, of course, is not giving in to the flesh, but walking instead in the power of God's Spirit. So, Janelle, my heart goes out to you. I'm really and truly sorry for the pain, um, but you will see the glory of God in this. And your pastor and the people who are there for him, um, they will grow. You will all grow as a result of this trial. I know it happened to us, and we grew. We became strong. Our foundation was never shaken. So, enjoy. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Tonight we've got our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies at 7 o'clock. Ladies, you can watch it, calvarysa.com. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow on AM 630 The Word at 4 o'clock. We'll see you then. Spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The word to stand on for life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.